Okay, welcome to A Place Where Conversations Matter and Truth Matters Even More. Today's episode is part two of Social Justice is a Cancer. This is focused on what to do in response to the social justice movement as Christians. So enjoy a conversation between Phil and I at our kitchen table where we kind of examine what we have been learning and what we urge others to learn and to do as well. All right, we have recorded this potential episode once already and then I went back and I listened to it and I thought, I don't like that. (laughs) And I think when I record anything when I'm kind of irritated at things. It's just not the spirit that I should be going into these types of conversations with. So we're redoing it. So Phil spent last time in this now trashed podcast episode um, talking about what Christians should do who disagree with this push, social justice push, etc. And it was really good. So sorry I had to had to trash that, <laughs> but I think it'd probably be better even just to talk about it because to have just a conversation back and forth about it. Because I think even since then, there have been more thoughts that have come up in both of our heads. Um, There's a book that you got in after that, I think, right? You got uh, this book that came in the mail called what? It's called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates so by that, Matt Truella, the so pastor in Wisconsin. In. So that came in, and then what happened with me? I can't remember. Some th- some thoughts came into my head. Well, I was reading some of those pamphlets of the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate, and that really spoke to me and resonated with, I think, some of the things that we wanted to say. So the format of this episode is just a conversation, but the, the whole subject kind of centers on what should Christians do about social justice movement. And specifically, this is what... Oh, and I started reading the book, um, Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham, which is excellent so far. And he is more specific in defining it as critical social justice under the umbrella of all critical theories. So that's what we're operating with, too. What I, what I defined last time as social justice really is part of critical social justice. So you're writing all these notes. <laughs> What are these notes? Are they what to do for this week? Or are they like notes for what we're going to talk about? It's a list of all of the wonderful toys I'm going to buy our children and (laughs) good things to buy you as a gift for Mother's Day coming up. No, it's not. It's some notes. You got me two gifts. (laughs) It's some notes notes related to this conversation. Um, I think before we start talking about our response, it's worth going over very briefly what it is because we're going to talk about fighting how do you fight back against this or what are we fighting because if you don't know what you're fighting you're going to waste your efforts and you may lose some people to friendly fire Hmm. so did you have a succinct definition of woke social justice or critical social justice that you've been working on Man, that really puts me on the spot, huh? Well, from the episode, I we defined social justice as redistributionism, and that's redistribution of wealth, redistribution of opportunities, redistribution of income, redistribution of... Well, with the critical element, that oh, means power. So anytime yeah, so... you hear the word critical, not in the context of critical thinking, but a critical theory of race or gender or 
anything, you need to be thinking about power because that's how they look at the world, who has power, who doesn't have power, who is oppressing and who is oppressed. So within that definition of social justice, then it is assumed already that they're the reason that people do not have the have nots, the ones that lack in wealth or income or status is because they are the oppressed class. And then the ones that do have the, they are the oppressor class, which is why I think it's also assumed in these circles that someone who does not have something is being sinned against and someone who does have something extra is the one sinning. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why we're fighting back against this is because it's a flawed homardiology, which is the doctrine of sin, because it sets up the oppressed classes as almost incapable of sin, or if they are maybe sinning, someone who's in the oppressor class can't call them out in their sin because it's just another act of oppression or dominance. And so it empties the gospel of its power to confront real sin in the lives of people who are in these so-called oppressed classes. Or, and I will say, I say so-called, and it doesn't mean that I don't believe that no one is oppressed, but I I do say so-called because I don't believe that every claim of oppression is equally valid. And that's what makes these these types of conversations hard is because once you make a statement like that, you already have people in the other camp saying, well, there's except there are people who are oppressed, but you're not hearing what we say. We're not saying that there are aren't people who are oppressed and there aren't people who are oppressors. We're saying that you can't define that by skin tone. You can't define that even by perceived inequities or unequal outcomes. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Anytime you see a disparity, if you immediately jump to this is because of oppression or injustice, you might be a social justice Christian or social justice person. Yeah. And you know, I in a, in a way that's not helpful and doesn't align with the truth of God's word. There are some things that we are naturally accused of and one is not being concerned about people who are oppressed, right? So that's something people who on this side of the aisle who are saying that critical social justice is destructive, it is a cancer to the church, it's going to tear us apart and not just cause division but set up a false gospel set up a false like you said harmardiology um so the study of sin and what sin is and it's actually going to take people away from what is going to be life-giving and going to free them from sin because people either are going to confess things that aren't actually sin or not are not going to confess anything even when they are a sinner right and first john talks about this a lot if you say that you are not a sinner you are a liar and you are not part of God's family. And that also includes if you call things sin that are not or call something not sinful that is sinful. You are still basically testifying the opposite of what God's word says. So some people will accuse us, right, of, or people on this side of the aisle of not caring about acts of injustice. Well, I would also respond to those to certain people that might um, accuse us of that and say, well, are you so quick to actually call something evil that actually isn't evil? Isn't that like exactly what you're accusing me of doing, but in the opposite way? Like you're, you're accusing me of saying that 
something is, is not unjust. And you're saying, well, it actually was unjust. But I'm saying you're always calling something unjust, whether it be an interaction with a white officer and a black civilian, and you're automatically ascribing a sin to that, automatically calling it unjust, that is equally as unjust of a statement as what you are accusing, what you could potentially be accusing people like us of doing. So it works both ways. If you are calling something sin or calling something not sin and incorrect in that, that is still um, opposite of what God's law tells us to do. Yeah, is that exactly. Okay. So then we come to what to do and the obvious answer of any kind of heresy or apostasy for the response of a faithful Christian is that you have to fight back against it. There's no room to follow the path of least resistance to just try to be faithful in your own personal walk with the Lord or your own family while everything goes to hell around you. It's the same religious analogy of the people who are in a woke social justice form of Christianity that there is, they think it's oppression or racism everywhere that needs to be fought against. And we think that their ideology is not biblical and needs to be, needs to Combated. be, we need, we, yeah, it needs to be compatible. We need to fight. And so when you think about combat, this is part of what I was jotting down. So when you go into combat, you go, you want to go in prepared. And so you go in with the tools of warfare and in Ephesians six, we read about the tools of our warfare, the armor of God. And so we go equipped with the armor of God and the primary weapon of combat or the weapon of combat is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so that's what we want to come armed with as we deal with these, these issues, uh, which means that you don't have to spend dozens and dozens of hours reading and reading books and listening to podcasts or, you know, Ted talk style things to figure out what is social justice and what is Christian social justice. If you know your Bible well and you have the Holy Spirit, then you're wiser in dealing with these issues than most of the human population. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not good to come in with knowledge because that's another part of combat. You come in knowledge, intelligence, counterintelligence. You don't want to be caught up in this fog of war where you don't know where your enemy is, how to identify your enemy versus how to identify the people that are on your side. So um, let's, to, let's pick up on that a little bit. So one of the elements of warfare then would be to know your enemies and their tactics, right? Would yes. Agree? So what are... And we've talked about this a lot, and I think it's really important. What are some of the tactics of those who are social justicians or critical race theorists? Anything in the critical theory category. What are some ways in which they have armed themselves for combat? Well, one thing comes to mind, or two things come to mind. The first, and I'm not going to elaborate on it to, uh, too much, but 
whatever they are accusing you of is probably what they're doing. Hmm. And so I guess I should try to give an example. Racism. Yeah, I get, I get <laughs> racism. So we would define racism as racial animus. So being preferenced or um, hateful against someone because of their race or racial vainglory, being, taking excessive pride in your own race and exalting yourself above others. Uh, and so one of the things is the social distinctions, they talk about race, they have this, you know, take, take for instance, voter IDs. So the conservative, Republican, whatever you want to say, side thinks that people should have to present some kind of photo identification when they vote. And then you go, uh, so there was a video by Ami Horowitz, conservative guy. He goes into the Bronx, I think, or Brooklyn, and he's talking to black people and asking them, where's the DMV? Do you know how to, do you, do you know anybody? Do you know, do you guys know how to get ID? And people are, they're looking at him like he's a moron. Like, how could you possibly think we don't know where the DMV is? Like we have a bunch of friends who don't have photo IDs or can't figure out how to get it. It's like, I have the internet and I use it all, I use it all the time. (laughs) And then he goes to UC Berkeley in the Bay area and he starts talking to, you know, white liberal college students and they insist, you know, they're just adamant that it's racist because these people don't have access to IDs. They don't know how to get IDs. They maybe wouldn't know how to use the internet to access it. And so they're accusing the Republicans of being racist and trying to suppress the black vote through voter ID because they have racist beliefs about the inferiority and the incapability and the like an insane level of victimization of the black community to where they wouldn't be capable of figuring out how to get an ID and thus would be unable to vote. So it's voter suppression. So there, it prime example of whatever they are accusing you of is probably what they're guilty of. Yeah. Another way, another tactic that they use is disarming you so that what you would normally use in a debate tactic is no longer lethal or effective. One, and I'm going to read to you one of the presuppositions of critical race theory so that it kind of draws it back to the foundations of the theories themselves. But they take away things like enlightenment reasoning. They take away data, stats. They take away your ability to actually talk about race or racism if you are white. And I don't even like to use that word anyway because we're all different colors. It's not like there's really a category of white and a category of black and a category of brown. We're all kind of a spectrum of colors, but what they would deem as not people of color or or as white people. So, for instance, the third presupposition for critical race theory is anti-liberalism. It questions the foundations of legal reasoning, enlightenment, enlightenment, rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. The fourth presupposition is that knowledge is socially constructed, and that's probably even bigger to my argument. 
It says that storytelling and narrative reading is the way black people forward knowledge versus the science and reason method of white people. So if you're going to use science and reason, you're automatically lumped in with white supremacy and with whiteness. And your argument is ineffective within that sphere because you're arguing from a white point of view. And then after that, it says uh, minority status, in other words, brings with it a presumed competence to speak about race and racism. And this is from Vodibacham's um, book called Fault Lines. And that is true. Whenever I've had these arguments before, I wouldn't even call them arguments, just like disagreements, discussions, because they weren't particularly heated or anything. One of the most common rebuttals is, well, you have you talked to a person of color about this? And I'm the what we're speaking about isn't experience. It isn't life experience. It isn't if you were followed in a store once, how many times you've been pulled over. It's nothing about that. It's about biblical principles and what's true and what's false and what God says and what God does not say. And then someone's rebuttal, a Christian person from the church is, well, have you talked to a person of color about this? And my response is, where, what are your embedded presuppositions that you would assume a person of color can understand this part of scripture better than a white person can? That, that doesn't make any, any sense in the biblical context. Now, if you're talking about cultural understanding, if you, could, if you said something like, well, you're reading Matthew, let's say, and the Jews would have understood Jesus's you know, uh, speech better than I would. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very fundamental cultural and time gap that we have. But race being the drawing line between those two is not even close to 2,000 years later of cultural difference um, between the Jews and um, Western Christians. So that's one way that they disarm you. They say, well, you can't actually use these methods, and if you do, you're racist automatically. And so what do we do? Naturally, what we do is, okay, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find a black conservative. I'm going to say, well, this is what he says. We don't play by their games. We don't disarm ourselves. With Says the woman who's reading from Vody Bakum. <laughs> because he's right, yeah. not because he's black. If you accept the lie that, well, you can't actually speak on this, and then you play the, by that game, they've already won. They won the battle. It's over. It's the same line of reasoning when people, like, cons let's say conservatives, will go a little bit more political. When conservatives say something like, oh, I'm excited that Caitlyn Jenner is going to run for governor because that means, you know, the left isn't going to be able to say anything about that. Ha! Yeah, right. Yeah, that's never going to happen. They're probably glad now <laughs> that Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor. Do not play by their games because they have already set the rules and they can change the rules at any time. And they've already set out, but part of the rule game is that they've won. They've already won. So if you all of a sudden say, okay, well, I can't use this reasoning or I can't use, you know, I can't use the Bible anymore because, you know, people don't believe the Bible, you have lost the battle. So we're coming from a purely biblical standpoint saying that the Bible is our sword. That's what we use. And now we're just talking about how to use it effectively, but we cannot put aside the weapons of warfare because this is a spiritual battle. It isn't a battle of flesh and blood. So how do we take what the Spirit has given us, what God has given us, and then use it effectively in battle? So we're going to get, a, I think, hopefully a little bit more practical in a little bit, unless you had something else no, to No, I say had about one that. other thing about fighting. And so uh, we went over 
our tool of battle, which is the word of God, the importance of knowledge and intelligence, intelligence in like the intelligence, counterintelligence, spycraft sense, yeah, not, not, like not being erudite or yeah, not um, having a, a high IQ, yeah. but of knowing yourself, your capabilities, what your enemy has, cap- what, what, you know, what are their strategies? But let me jump in on that too. There is an element that we're overlooking, and that is the fact that God is the one that's going out into the battle, right? So there's two things to keep in mind, that God has given us the ability to analyze and to think he's given us a mind to use, but then also that's not strictly what we're fighting with. We are also, we're walking out in faith that God is the one who's going to arm us, who's going to go before us, who is the one who is speaking, because he's the one that we want to exalt. We don't want ourselves to be exalted. We don't want people to remember our names, remember what we said, remember how great it sounded. We want them to remember the Christ, the chosen one, the sent one. So that I just want that to be balanced with the knowledge that God can take two people, one person, and send them out to a great army and then still be defeated. So um, yeah, keep that in mind when you're when you are going into battle. Yeah, and then um, another part is looking into your, I guess your spirit, you could say, and you're thinking about why are you fighting? What's your motivation? And so one aspect of that is where are you coming from? Are you coming from a place where you're, where you have a good spouse or good friends around you who are godly and who you can talk about these things with? Are you in a good solid church that's preaching the gospel? that isn't infected by this because you're fighting not only just because it's right, but you are in a sense, we're fighting for the survival of our society and for the furtherance of the true church and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And that's an offensive progression. Mm -hmm. And another part of that, of, the motivation or what's going on on a, on like a mental or spiritual level while you're fighting is the training that leads up to it. And so again, that goes back to the word of God and knowledge and what training does in a military sense is it yields automatic responses on the battlefield and it allows that training to override or triumph over your fear. And sometimes it's tremendous, tremendous courage is evidenced in spite of the fear of the person because their training took over and they, you don't have to pour in as much in the moment. Uh, have, you don't have to generate as much courage on the spot if you're well-trained going into it. And yeah, so, so if you think, courage, yeah. Right? And so if you think that you're going to stand up in the middle of your corporate seminar for the very first time after you've never talked about issues of social justice and systemic oppression or, you know, whatever, and you're going to you're going to defend the faith in that moment but never having fought any small battles leading up to it and it's possible i guess especially if you have the spirit of god i mean that's the only way it's possible probably mm-hmm. but, but you see a pattern yeah, i mean in the new testament and that's the same pattern that's invinced in at the end of the sermon on the mount where jesus talks about the one who hears the words and obeys and he's like a man who built his house on the rock and the man who hears and does not obey 
is the one whose house is, is like a house built on the sand. And the construction of the house precedes yeah. the wind and the storms and the flood. And the only reason that it stands is because of the work that was done before. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where training comes in. Mm-hmm. So let's give some examples about like where this could start and where it could lead. So I'm just going to talk anecdotally first. So you might be thinking, okay, what's the, you know, what can I do? <laughs> when I'm sitting here, I hear some things at work, maybe that maybe this is you, have heard some things at work and it just kind of, you know, breezes past you a little bit or blows past you because you think, I don't want to get into it, maybe. Um, maybe you think it's not the right time. Uh, it could be super awkward. Um, I'm trying to build a relationship with this person. Is work setting really the place where it should happen? Or, well, it's so minor, like, it, it's not something to fight against, right? But I think what's so deceptive about that I mean, think, think, think about this whole last year with coronavirus. Do you think that if we were told the first day we're going to shut down for over a year and you won't be able to be with your family on Christmas, on any holidays, you may not be able to see your loved ones die, you have to wear a mask everywhere, you might have to wear two and a face shield, and you won't have, be able to do any education in public, and if you you know, take them off, you're going to be accused of, take these masks off, you're going to be accused of killing to kill people. If you were told that at the front, people would probably have rioted in the streets or something like that. Now, again, at the very beginning, people didn't know what severity, people thought it was going to be extremely severe. But if you were told that right away, there would be a lot of pushback. But what happened? We weren't told that. We were told 15 15? days to slow the spread. Okay, just another couple months. Another month. Okay. It's, it's We're just waiting for the vaccine. We're yeah. waiting for the vaccine. Okay, maybe after the election. It's probably just like hyped up because of the election. Okay, so after the inauguration. Okay, then after... Okay, everyone's vaccinated. Oh, wait. People are vaccinated and you're still not supposed to see many people? Okay, that's conditioning, right? And so it's the same thing now. If you're in a work setting and you hear something in passing about... We're going to have a training. Let's say you're going to have a diversity, inclusion, and equity training. And you think, well, that sounds nice. Like God created diverse you know, people. We want to include everyone as welcome at the seat of, um, at the, seat of um, the cross or at the foot of the cross. And equity. Oh, I want equal access for all people. And then you go to this training and you think, oh, that's not exactly because they're talking about inclusion meaning that you know we kind of have to celebrate in a way you walk on activity yeah, you walk on eggshells to never offend anyone well, and okay. you celebrate them right and so you're told this in your training and you think well it was just one thing that they said you're now in the place of being conditioned to for it to not bother you anymore because you're going to start hearing it more And they're going to start building. It's not just going to be, okay, you have to not oppose gay marriage. You have to be for gay marriage. You have to, now not just that, you can't say anything about trans athletes being in opposite sex bathrooms with your kids anymore. And if you do, you're transphobe. Oh, and actually beyond that, if you don't accept, go down the line. It keeps going. It will keep expanding. 
You are conditioned on a small scale at the beginning and then it grows and grows and grows until the enemy of the giant is too big and they're gonna say, why didn't you say anything at the beginning? So why do you say something at the beginning? Because that's when it starts. That's when the, actually, that's not even when the battle starts. That's when the first bullet has flown. They've already been, these social justicians, these academic, academicians have been constructing these theories since what, the 80s? So, I mean, social 60s, justice writings. Yeah, 60s, actually, 70s, 80s. But yeah, some of the recent ones that we know about were like the 80s and 90s, like yeah. Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, et cetera. 80s and 90s. So this wasn't what you first heard the sounds of this battle probably in the last couple years, right? So they've already been building up their arsenal. So that's to say that when you first hear of it, that's when you got to be on. That's when you have to be willing to say the small uncomfortable things up front. So let's go back to this anecdote that I was going to give you. So I was in this leadership academy at my school and th th there was one day that was all about LGBTQ stuff and privilege. And I was really nervous. <laughs> I was thinking, what am I going to do? I wasn't really in the fight mentality, but I think God just started leading me into thinking you can't be silent. That's just, I just knew. And this was probably almost two years ago, right? No, this was before Asher was born. So it was four oh, years wow. ago. Oh, wow. was that long ago? This was four years ago. And so you had to go around the room and like give your pronoun or something like that. And you also had to, I can't remember. You had to say some things that you're privileged by. And one was if you're straight, blah, 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 some, something I can't remember. And I had raised my hand at some point and I said, I just, di I disagree with something like the lifestyle, the homosexual lifestyle. And so I can't, I can't actually like corroborate any of your guys' claims or um, go along with what you're saying because you have fundamental presuppositions about sexual ethics that I don't agree with. And <laughs> you remember when I came home and told you about that? It was extremely awkward. I had one student in there kind of berate me and was like, well, you're a faculty member, so you have to get over it. You have to get over your bias and your prejudice. And then I had someone else say, yeah, I used to be, uh, I used to be like that. And I'm a Christian too, but you know, then you grow and you learn. And it was just so condescending. <laughs> There's so much condescension. And then I had a couple girls come up to me afterwards and like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm glad you had said what you said. I'm still working through that too, you know, blah, blah, blah. And of course there's kind of a sub, um, focus within this story of the silent Christian who doesn't say anything until afterwards. I'm thinking, thanks guys, <laughs> thanks a lot for saying something during as I'm kind of getting like blasted by people around me. So if you are that person, you have someone around you who is saying something and you're not, please don't be that person. Please, you, you, it will be hard, but stick your neck out for your brothers and sisters. Come alongside them. We don't do battle as independent entities. We do it as an infantry, as a, I don't know, what's another technical word for that, as a troop. As you're a, a unit. You're a unit together. So after that, that was one, I think, big moment of me kind of singling myself out and realizing that I wasn't really accepted in that sphere. And then I ended up on this 
mentoring program at school. And it was kind of funny because I didn't realize that the whole focus until like the first meeting was how to accomplish social justice or carry out social justice within mentoring STEM students. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. How do I keep ending up on these things? I don't think actually it's just me. I think it's that pervasive. Yeah. With especially in school systems. So if you're not in academia and you think, I don't really think this is a big deal, it's probably because it just hasn't hit you as much yet, but it's coming. Because it always starts in the schools, upper end, and then trickles down. It's now in the uh, not just your kids, secondary education, your nieces and nephews, but in elementary education. And it's kind of covert, right? Because they don't always use the same terms, but they teach them the same logic or lack of logic, um, within, uh, the critical theories. So I was in that and I knew we were having a discussion on this book called critical mentoring. And it was, I mean, I'm not trying to exaggerate the most heinous thing I've ever read in my life. It was horrible. That book was horrible. It was first of all, so quote academic, you can't even hardly understand most of it because most of these people use so many convoluted words and sentences that they're it's like they're trying to get something past you without you even realizing what's going on and trying to seem really smart so that yeah. you don't catch it or something. I don't even know what the deal is. Their their scholarship and their reasoning is trash and they cover for it. With a bunch of words. With a bunch of words. Yeah, it's like that you just use a thesaurus or something. I, I don't understand. But anyway, um, so I had written something out. And during the meeting, I read it out and it was basically like, I think this is godless and I reject pretty much all of it. And it was also slightly awkward. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's not like I've had these triumphal moments of woo. And, and everyone... you, you brought your faith into that one. Directly. More, directly. Right. You said this book is religious. This oh, is yes. this is a secular religion, and it is a religion. It has many of the same elements as religion. Original sin, I, salvation, etc. I believe in a different religion, and I hold to to God, who is truth. The yeah, the authoritative yeah speaker on justice and what is good and and um, righteous. And so it was really interesting. Though I'll just tell you for those of you who are thinking, oh gosh, what are the outcomes of these things? Well, one is that it's kind of awkward. The second thing, though, is that you, you end up having people that are like, I think in at least in academia, that kind of smile and like, oh, I'm so glad that people, you know, feel the freedom to voice their, you know, their opinions. And we should talk more about that. You'll hear that. I bet you anything you'll hear. We should talk more about that. Try to talk to them more about that. They'll go I, I bet you. <laughs> I bet you a hundred bucks. That they'll ghost you. I've tried this so many times. I said, okay, I'll take you up on that. Write an email, call, send a text, you know, write something out. Nothing. Radio silence. They don't, they don't come back. So the people that are like the nicest to your face don't, and this is a super like broad overarching statement. So please don't write this down as like, oh, it's always going to happen this way. The people that are nicest that smile at you and nod probably don't care what you're like probably totally disagree and just want to do that to like save face, but they don't really care about my conversation with you, unfortunately. And that's not all the time. Okay. That was just my experience. And then the last one, I had a conversation with someone in a higher position at our school 
and talk to them about how I don't think the social justice that's being pushed. And they had some things to say about the George Floyd, or the, sorry, it was really Derek Chauvin trial, which by the way, no one has yet to give any evidence as how that was motivated by racial animus, nobody. But that was embedded in the email that was sent out from this, from this person in a leadership position. And I had a phone call with them and said that I didn't think that what they were saying and social justice that was being pushed was in line with God's view of justice. And basically said, is there a place for people like us on this campus? Are we allowed to be on the diversity inclusion equity board? Are we allowed to, you know, say our, what our viewpoint is? And if I summarized it, their response would have been no. It would be an uphill battle for you to be included in that conversation. So that's just, that just goes to show it wasn't like it was a terrible conversation. It was just really telling that this battle has already been going on for a while and they've won a lot of these little battles. And they're winning right now. They're on the winning side. The momentum is on their side. So you think, oh, I'm just going to, you know, let it pass. It's not passing. It's coming for everyone. And we're not just going to think about ourselves. We're going to think about our kids, those in the community that are affected. I think minority communities are more adversely affected by this, what I would call nonsense, than anyone else. So that's just an anecdote of how I went about it when I had opportunities. But what would you say? Is there any practical thing that you could like give them a phrase or something that they could do if they're in a meeting or if they see an email or uh, just they have a, or in a conversation with someone who brings it up? I think that one of the main things, well, this, this may or may not work. It depends on how infected someone is with critical ideologies. But a good question is, how do you know that? How mm. do you know that? And so what you're questioning is their epistemology. Mm-hmm. What is the source of their knowledge? Is it their feelings? Is it an anecdote? Is it the experience, the subjective experience of an individual person or of a narrative that someone has created by supposedly being in touch with communities of a certain race or gender or sexuality? Um, so when there's a lot of people who haven't thought deeply about it, but just accept on its face what the overwhelming media and cultural narrative is of what's going on in our country right now, they're not going to have a good answer to how do you know that? Mm -hmm. And especially at the university campus, when you're talking about your STEM colleagues, Mm -hmm. they're maybe more inclined to think about data and statistics um, and kind of walk through logically rather but they're afraid, but they're afraid. Yeah. And so bring anything up because yeah. when you bring something up, that's like kind of the Kafka trap, right? If you don't bring anything up, you admit it. If you do bring something up that shows you you're guilty. Yeah. So either way you're found guilty. Your, your protestations <laughs> of innocence are used to prove that you're guilty. Yes. So this is advice, right? So pay attention Look out especially for buzzwords of diversity, equity, inclusion, oppression, systemic, systematic, things like that. And so whenever you hear those words, start listening really carefully. Ask questions, especially how do you know that? 
um, and and think you know think deeply and think about biblical terms that are used when people say, well, oh, shouldn't we yeah. love our neighbor? Shouldn't we care for the widow? Shouldn't we? Yeah, Can you yeah. So that all? so if you're and it, that's more the secular context. If you're dealing with it on a Christian level, look out for people who quote Micah six eight all the time, or <laughs> and we're obviously this is hard because because um, that's a verse in the Bible. And it's true <laughs> because it's true, but it's the way that it's used. Yeah, that is manipulative. So can you explain that though? Like, how is it used to manipulate? Yeah. So it says, "What does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice, love mercy?" I think it's seek justice. Isn't it seek do do justice, seek mercy. Walk humbly. Walk humbly before your God, I think. It's something like that. So they take that and the situation that that was written in, in, you know, pre, pre-Christ Israel or Judah uh, and the kinds of oppression and injustice that were going on there. And then they do that little thing where you take a word that's in the Bible, injustice or justice, and then you use it in the same way people are using it now without respect to what it, it meant then and what it, it means what for all time, what it's now. supposed to mean. So the word justice, mishpat, means justice, righteousness. And so if you're talking about justice in the modern sense and it's you're applying it to something that's obviously unrighteous like sodomy or some sexual perversion um a defiling or denying the natural order of god's creation that he made male and female if you're taking the word justice and applying it to that you're misapplying the text of scripture Mm -hmm. um it can be a, a little bit more muddy or tricky when you're applying it to social inequities and disparities but if if someone is broadly applying it to all the disparities racial disparities or gender disparities that exist in our culture right now and saying that it's injustice because of oppression of the powerful class the white male hetero christian whatever keep that question how do you know how do you know yeah so the presuppositions of the critical theories of social justicians of the woke ideology is that these disparities are evidence of the fact that the whole system is rigged on behalf of the oppressor class. And so any disparity then, and then they interpret every disparity in light of what they know to be true about the system. And so they've created a beautiful circle in their reasoning mm-hmm. And it's the same with, with racism, right? They look at a situation like what Danae mentioned about Chauvin and George Floyd, where there's no obvious racial animus in the situation. The only thing that's racial about it is that George Floyd happened to be black and Derek Chauvin happened to be white. And he happened to be a police officer. He was a police officer and George Floyd was a, was committing a crime and he was allegedly. also uh, he allegedly, yeah, allegedly, and he was also a victim of police brutality. Mm-hmm. And the courts have said, the jury has said that it was manslaughter and murder. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so how do we know that there's systemic racism in our country? Well, look what happened to George Floyd. Or the other way around. How do we know that... What? Sorry. Meaning... We know there's systemic racism, so when we have an, a situation between a black guy and a white guy, we know that has to be racist because of our systemic racism in our society. So it's, we already assume that there's systemic racism, and then, so that means the Derek Chauvin and George Floyd incidents was racist. Well, how do we know it was racist? Oh, because there's systemic racism. That's where yeah, you're getting that's at, that's the right? circle. Exactly. So the, the data that you that you put in and output you get out is fed in as the data for yeah. the next calculation. Yes. So be be careful about that. This this also coincides though what we're talking about in terms of using biblical language to kind of manipulate people. This coincides with stuff with mask wearing too, with love your neighbor, yeah. right? I mean, it's these very broad statements. People are using them very broadly, and using them to compel you to do something yeah. about it, right? Okay, well, the Bible says love your neighbor. Well, isn't it loving to wear your mask? Because couldn't you, if you didn't wear your mask, you could spread the disease? And isn't spreading disease not loving your neighbor? So they use these kind of broad overarching principles and apply them to situations. Yeah. And they they skip a lot of actually, uh, a, a lot of the arguments in between and go right down to what you need to do. Yeah. In terms of mask wearing, in terms of going out, in terms of socializing, whatever. So it, it doesn't just sit within race and it also... Yeah, that's very neutral um, as like who would be the victim of it. It could be anybody. It could be the victim of you giving COVID and you not loving them. So they're oppressed basically yeah. because you're not wearing their mask. So anyway, it's, it's, it can be used... That's worth, that's worth unpacking a little bit more. Um, maybe we'll do a second episode and maybe okay. we'll even do it tonight after we turn off this recording so but yeah there's a lot of language that can be used to yeah. kind of manipulate your mind and it's this is especially true just as a warning within short little like memes or yeah. posts with because these arguments and these these issues require a lot of discussion and thought they cannot be flushed out in a tweet they yeah. cannot be flushed out in a meme and people are, I think we're such passionate people. There's something so good about that, being passionate about things. But there's also something that can really betray you in your passion because you see something like one statement, one clip, one tweet, whatever it is, and you run with it. You retweet it. I mean, I'm, I'm totally guilty of that too. So that's why I stopped doing that and started saying, you know what, I'm going to do videos or like audio instead because... First of all, you can hear the tone of my voice. And second of all, I'm actually explaining why I have that position. I'm not just going to retweet or, or um, put on Instagram just some picture I found. Yeah. But I really hope that you can touch just a tiny, tiny bit on the idea of, of not submitting to just any yeah. governing authority. Do you want to do that next I'll, instead? No, I'm, I'm working my way there. So we said pay attention for the buzzwords. Keep your ears Keep your ears pe peeled. Peeled. <laughs> your eyes peeled. Keep your ears. What is it? In tune. In tune. I don't know. Listen. Listen a lot. Listen for the buzzwords. <laughs> Ask questions like, "How do you know that?" Be honest about where you're coming from. I think what Danae did in the conversation with the high-ranking person 
at her job was really important, that she was very forthcoming about, I'm a Christian, the word of God is my authority, God is the author of, of justice, he has established what is right and what is wrong, and I am under his authority, and that is the authority that I am bringing to this conversation. I'm not bringing my own ideas. I am, I am God's ambassador on mm -hmm. this earth, appealing you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God mm -hmm. and to, to follow the truth, to forsake lawlessness and unrighteousness and true injustice and embrace what God has for you. So being very, very straightforward about that and embrace the fact that it's going to be awkward or weird that you might get made fun of but it does get less so yeah the more you do the it the more you do it the more i mean just think about the people that are like proselytizing on the on street corners i'm sure the first time they did it it was like really mm. uncomfortable but then after you do it so many times it's like this is my life this is what i do you know and we haven't really touched on this but there's a huge element here in which christian social justicians believe that they are transforming people from the outside in. And what transforms people, what actually gives them life is from the inside out, right? And so there's a lack of, of true gospel preaching. What is it? You're a sinner. You're in need of being reconciled to God. How are you reconciled to God? Through Christ alone, through faith alone, in Him, not through anything of your works, not by anything that you do so that no one can boast. And so then you have a restored relationship with God, which makes you do what? When you're restored with God, what does that cause? Joy. It cause, causes worship to flow out of you. So what's interesting... And courage. And courage, too, to, to tell others about it. So what can also be super manipulative about this is people have this idea that we're going out into the world to change people from the outside in. That somehow, okay, we're just going to make everything right around us, which I don't even agree with their perspective of what's right and wrong, but in their position, I'm going to change everything that's, that's wrong in the world around us, and that will seep in and change everything on the inside. The fundamental problem is sin, right? Is that we're not reconciled with God, and every person is not reconciled with God unless they go through Christ, Christ alone. So, and the last thing I'll say that before, Phil, kind of, I don't know if you're finishing on this or what, but the last thing that I'll say about that is that there's this, uh, actually uh, in our church service today, our pastor uh, said this, he's, uh, and I think he was, he was quoting he someone was quoting else, but someone, I don't really yeah. remember who he was quoting, sorry. It says, uh, want, a, want a miserable life, mix law and the gospel. And what's interesting is so many social justicians are miserable people. I mean, they're sad. They're always angry. They're upset. They're, and I get it. There's a time to be sad. There's a time to mourn. I, I, I'm definitely not opposed to that. But when you see a Christian who is reconciled to God, what does it make us do? It makes us rejoice. It doesn't make us try to find things that are wrong in other people and how they've uh, oppressed us or accused us or or done, done us wrong. It's like, wow, God gave me life again and I can forgive him as well. So there's just a pattern of lacking in thanksgiving, lacking in, in rejoicing in the truth, lacking in, um, in praising God and always focusing on what is wrong in the person who wronged you, who did something wrong to you. So I, I did want to mention that. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So we've said, pay attention, ask questions, be honest about where you're coming from, that you're under God's authority and that your will and 
your life is subordinate to scripture. And then at that point you, you start to push back. And when you push back there, I would say it's situational, right? Sometimes it might be appropriate to add many caveats to what you're saying about what you're not going to say, but realize that they're probably going to accuse you of what you're not saying, even if you say what you're not saying. Well, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying there are no racists in our country. I'm not saying, well, they're going to accuse you of being, being that very thing. So to some degree, it's worth it. And it's probably, I would err more towards being direct and forthright about the way that you're pushing back rather than adding caveats and trying to put this candy coating on it that's going to make the pill go down a little bit easier mm-hmm. just say what you mean let your yes be yes and your no be no and say it with like with grace like you want to be kind to them obviously yes and no okay yeah. because okay i'm listening for christians i think there is also a time for sarcasm and wit and to ridicule the ridiculous. But so don't we use don't, it as a way to it's like not a get weapon. something off your chest. It's not a weapon right? in this. Well, it's not a weapon that you wield in anger. There you go. Okay. Right? In your anger, do not sin. But if there's something that's ridiculous, it's you okay to it say that this is ridiculous. Okay, that makes me feel better because yeah. I don't know if you knew one of the things that haunts me from a long time ago is that I said the idea of transgenderism should be mocked. And someone was, I got a lot of heat for that. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't have said that. And I didn't mean the, I didn't say the people should be mocked. I said that the idea that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man should be mocked. Yes. I agree with that, that it should be mocked. There you go. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be mocked all the time in every circumstance, but I don't, yeah, it's. To treat it with kid, to like treat it with kid gloves and say, "Well, I understand that there are some situations." No, you you're saying come straight out and say this. This is ridiculous. There's no possible way to tell someone for the transgender issue that before they, a man can become a woman. Before a ten seconds ago, nobody even thought about this. About yeah. You know, not uh, ten seconds, meaning the last few years, but there's thousands of years of human history. Well, I mean, people knew, people, yeah, actually that's probably true because the idea of actually becoming a man or becoming a woman, even in cultures that had like certain gender, like. We're not talking about people who are adopting the stereotypical practices of the opposite gender. We're talking about people who claim that they are, that's who they are in essence. Yeah. Their, their existence. It's an existential question. Yeah. And. Yeah, that's worthy of of mockery. Um, And to add on to that, and this is uh, what I'll close with as far as the practical tips, is don't lie and never apologize unless you're actually convinced you've done something wrong. Okay, we have to get into that. Because that's good. Yeah, and so that, that extends beyond. I heard that in the context, I think in the context of marriage, but I, I think I've also heard it in the context of talking about battling woke ideologies. So you may offend someone with your forthright 
you know, forthright assertions about what is true and what is false. And you may, you will likely offend people if you are willing to go into a little bit of satire or ridicule from time to time. If you have kind of a, well, there's a, I think there's a way that you can be cutting and biting in a way that's, that's godly because it has the truth to back it up and because you're not coming from a place of sinful hatred or superiority. You're not trying to tear these people down in order to make yourself look good right, or feel good. Right. You're doing it because it basically because it needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And you, you look at the way that Jesus dealt with the Pharisees calling them, he called them names, right? He called them a brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. And it was, that was public mockery and ridicule for people who deserved it because he was, Jesus was telling the truth. And it was mostly aimed at the in crowd, like the people in the church actually. Right? And, yeah. And no one can accuse. So if, if Jesus could do that out of love without sin, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd have to say it's, it's something that you got to be careful with, right? It's if you're going to go into that, especially if you have personality traits or, you know, that's something that you've always struggled with as being mean and sarcastic and rude. Maybe it's not the best idea for you to lean into that and mock these things that you believe to be untrue. Or at least if you are going to do it, do it very, very carefully. You should have someone, continually, to, yeah, have someone keep you accountable. to keep you accountable and check your heart continually. But just because you get you offend someone in that doesn't necessarily mean that it was done in sin. And that's um, probably the hard thing about saying anything. Well, especially saying anything online is that as soon as you get the, and you will get this feedback of you're being unloving, you're being, you're lacking in grace, you're lacking in kindness, you're lacking in gentleness. It's the, the current Christian culture is so focused on softness in everything that we do that we've really lost our power in saying anything. Yeah. But it's about being nice. Now you had the, the principle so that you just brought I wanted up to say, uh, so never apologize okay. unless you are convinced that you've actually done something wrong. And so for a Christian, that is going to mean that you're in fellowship with God, that you're, walking with in the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it means that you need to learn to be a little bit more introspective and think about, look, look at your motivations. And as, as far as it depends on you, you know, you, you purify yourself. Well, you, God purifies God. You, but... Yeah. You, I mean, it's an inward yeah. thing that's happening between you and the Holy Spirit. And you have people that are speaking into your life. And if you think about it in the context of marriage, it's easy for a husband when his wife confronts him with something to just apologize. Um, if there's, especially if there's emotions involved, there's tears or, or anger or something like that to just kind of put it away and move past it really quick without, considering what's really going on here. Did I actually sin against my wife? Did she perceive that there was a slight against her, but it wasn't my intention. And so the more you feed into that without actually going deeper, 
the more shallow and fragile your marriage is going to become. And, if, and people esteem that usually though, right? Yeah. Like, oh, he oh he's a the nice man. guy. That's yeah, he's the nice man. guy who apologized and, and made up. Well, you're setting your marriage up for disaster because there's going to come a point where you're not, you're not growing gonna, your wife. You're not going to be able to bear it anymore as a man. Well, and you're not you're not loving your wife. Yeah, that. you're not loving your wife because you're living a lie, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of I said part of what I said. Do not lie. Oh right. Don't don't lie. If someone wants you to say that a woman is a man and a man is or a man is a woman, don't lie. Right. You don't have to be a jerk about it, but don't lie. Yeah, that's good. That's really. And good. if someone's offended. Because you won't lie, don't apologize for it. Because you didn't do anything wrong. Mm-mm. You you have to answer to God for every word. Mm-hmm. And if you lie, if you're a coward, what do you, what do you have? You're setting yourself up for more failures, for more weakness in the future. Um, okay, can I can I please? Yeah. Scenario time because this has been on my mind for a while and I was thinking about how you can say something that is you both want want to say okay let me back up how you can say something completely truthful means that you might be saying something that you want to say but also something that you really are hesitant to say so for instance let's say that you are more Actually, let's just do us as an example, okay? We are definitely more on the right in terms of, like, political issues. So, I could say this on social media, or I could say this to a person, anyone, okay? I could say it to any human, (laughs) digital or not. I could say, you know, what happened to George Floyd was awful, and... We need Jesus. Okay, I could say that. That probably wouldn't offend a ton of people, right? I'm like trying to say something. I'm kind of like formulating my words in such a way that it's both true, but it's friendly, Mm -hmm. you know, to people. Or let's say a second scenario. I could say something like, what happened to George Floyd was awful. We need Jesus. And if we want to start saving people from this situation, we can both advocate for change in our government and tell people in these communities that are more, let's just say, at risk for an altercation with the cops to comply. So imagine I put that. I say, you know, what happened to George Floyd was awful. We all need the Lord. Let's both lobby, I don't know if you'd call it lobby, but let's both push for legislative form and let's start telling minority communities to comply with officers. Which one of those statements is going to give you the most outrage? Why? Because it's an uncomfortable truth, but it's actually a truth that if you, if let's say an organization whom most of you know that I hate, Black Lives Matter, I hate them because I, I actually think they are a, their detriment a detriment to black people specifically because they won't say the whole truth i don't even think they say most anything true but they definitely won't say something that we know verifiably 
that that's verifiably true, that if people would comply in these situations, they have a way higher likelihood of leaving with their lives. Why won't they say that? Because it's not politically expedient for them. Yeah, it's not going it to. It's them not money. going to allow them to consolidate money and power. And it doesn't get outrage from people. Yeah. If you want to garner a lot of emotion and outrage and a movement behind you, then you tell one part of the story, you twist it, and every story that comes after that, you make it fit that narrative. That is the recipe for a mob, which it is, and a movement. A mob moves. They just do destructive things, just like the devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what a mob does, and that's how you get a mob. But you want to actually tell someone something that's life-giving, you have to tell the whole truth. And I don't, even, I don't even know what I would say in terms of legislation, but just that little piece in terms of if we said, hey, tell people to comply, that is victim blaming, right? Blaming the victim, that's racism. That's uh, overlooking all of the injustices. You are the problem, white supremacy. But isn't that the truth? Yeah, it's the truth. We know that from all these situations that we've seen involving almost all the ones that I can remember, at least recently, involving recently, okay, listen to that word recently, <laughs> involving a black person and a white officer, almost all of them what were the subject did not comply. Okay, am I saying, am I victim blaming? No, I'm saying, hey, if we want to save lives, let's do that. But we're uncomfortable. We don't want to go there because it's an uncomfortable truth. Well, if you're a Christian, you have to say what's uncomfortable. That's all. Yeah. So don't lie. Never apologize unless you're sure you've done something wrong. And when you have, be quick to apologize. Because, and, and ask for forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven much. And we have... We have received so great a forgiveness, we can pass that along, and that's the kind of forgiveness that we should expect from our Christian brothers and sisters. And now the last thing is, this is about the spheres of authority that people have. So I'm reading a book, uh, it's called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. It's by a, man, a pastor named Matt Truella in Wisconsin. Would highly recommend it based on the few chapters I've read so far. The book is called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates by Matt Truella, pastor in Wisconsin. And uh, there are two simple formulaic quotes. One is what the understanding of Christians has always been when it comes to the state is that when the state commands that which God, for, God forbids, or forbids that which God commands, it's the duty of Christians to obey God rather than the state. And, and you know, replace the state with anything, um, with, with man, society, culture, whatever it might be. And that the doctrine of the lesser magistrates is formulated as when a higher ranking authority gives an unjust or immoral command, it is the duty of the lower ranking uh, civil governing officials, whether they be a county, um, county supervisor or a sheriff or a deputy policeman, whatever it might be. So it is the duty of the lower ranking official 
to not follow that command and even to actively resist if possible. And so I had heard a number of years ago from a pastor and it's, it's called pietism. So it's pietistic ideas have been very prevalent in evangelical Christianity in the United States for the past few decades. And so it's a view of like personal piety and, and humility and being wronged and unlimited obedience to the government because that's what Romans 13 supposedly means. Like you know, that, that kind of ideal. And so they're applying the pietistic ideas, a pietistic Christianity to the American revolution and saying, well, you know, the, um, King George was their rightful authority. He was the king and, and parliament and everything. And so they really didn't have right to rebel. So their rebellion was against the governing authorities and it was against God. And so it was a violation of Romans 13. Um, if you apply the doctrine of the lesser magistrate to that situation, you would look at the unjust and immoral laws or commands that were being set forth by British rule in the United States and the colonies. And it rose to such a level that these men felt they had no recourse to petition their authorities for righteous judgment. And so they said in the Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then they go on to, to you know, justify why they're declaring independence. And it's because the government has become tyrannical and is not treating them with justice. The government is supposed to preserve rights and freedoms and the, and the safety and security of its citizens within the realm of authority that God has established for civil government. So civil government is not allowed to encroach in the, the ecclesial authority, the authority of the church or into certain, or into the sphere of authority of a family where God has designated the, the man or the husband to be the head of the household and of his wife. And the wife is with him as kind of like the co co-regent but ultimate headship and responsibility lies with the man. And even in, in some, there's a fourth sphere of influence that's the personal or individual sphere of influence. So there are things on an individual level that the state has no right to come in and command you to do. So when the state steps out of its sphere of authority, of the authority God has established for civil government, or it is within its authority, but it's contravening God's command. It is the duty of the lesser ranking government officials to interpose between the people that they support in their community that they serve and the higher ranking civil authority. And so when it comes to this idea of how do you fight back against woke critical social justice theories, you need to look at what what is the sphere of authority that God has given you outside of the individual authority and look in, in your family and in your church and in whatever authority that you hold in our society, in our culture. Um, you may be a government official, you may be a 
a teacher that's at a government school or a police officer or a social worker. You might be a, a politician or you maybe you work at the county health department or something. And so if you perceive and it's it's clear, right? You don't get to just decide, but in a situation where it's clear that the the higher ranking authority is commanding something that is immoral or unjust, then you you don't have the the privilege of doing something about it. You have the duty by God to interpose. And that's the same thing like this interposition is what Jesus did on the cross where he interposed between the wrath of God that we deserved and us. And he paid, he was willing to pay that penalty to propitiate, to turn away God's wrath. And you may end up doing some of that if you step up and do your duty to oppose this. I have nothing else to say. Do you have anything else? I would recommend a few resources if you're curious to learn more from the just the knowledge side about the history of social justice, critical theories, postmodern ideology. Um, I would commend you to listen to a man named James Lindsay. He's a math professor and is one of the foremost scholars that's combating critical race theory there are a few conversations that he had with a man named michael o'fallon and i think they're hosted on michael michael o'fallon's podcast which is called sovereign nations james Lindsay's website is called new discourses james Lindsay is an atheist and was in the new atheist movement but has kind of left that behind and it's and has weirdly united with some more conservative Christians who are fighting against wokeism. I would also recommend one of uh, James Lindsay's colleagues, Peter Bogosian, um, who was a professor, or maybe still is a professor at Portland State. And he's he wrote a book, I think it might have been co-authored with uh, James Lindsay, but it's called How to Have Impossible Conversations. I haven't read the book. Um, he's also an atheist professor, but again, they've had some very interesting and thought-provoking conversations with Christian figures about these topics. And his book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, there are some videos on YouTube where he's in a park talking to people and he basically, they'll, they'll like select a topic and talk about it. And he kind of pauses the conversation and will break down what principles from his book he's using and having these difficult conversations things to avoid um, and uh, strategies to use. And I thought that was, it was very interesting. I'm sure it would be helpful. Um, and doing your research and learning, I would stress that you don't need to feel like you need to do 100 hours of research and write a dissertation before you can go into your workplace or your church, or small group, whatever, and start to push back on some of this. Because as a Christian, you have... Uh, the Spirit of Christ, who is the wisdom of God that lives in you. A couple other things. There's a podcast called Just Thinking that Danae listens to a lot. Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker 
Um, Vody Bauckham's stuff is really good. You could also look at John Harris. He's got a podcast, and the name is, is oh, it's called Conversations That, that Matter. Matter. Um, he's got some interesting things to say about this as well, as, from from the Christian perspective. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, those are just some some resources. I have spent a lot of time. It's been very interesting to me to f- try to figure out what's going on and piece all this stuff together. And I, I've really enjoyed this part. I think it's the engineer in me that's trying to figure out what are the mechanisms and what's going on kind of behind it. I'm not into the emotional side of it as much, but trying to figure out how it works and the nuts and bolts the history has been very interesting to me and I would commend any of those resources to your listeners. Great. Well, thank you for having this. Hopefully we can do kind of a part two with COVID stuff. That could be interesting. Thanks for listening and we'll see you guys next time.